Now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 11, continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before Yahweh in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before Yahweh. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Father, your word is alive, it is powerful, it is uh, sharper than a two-edged sword. And if we do not uh, receive it and do not hear it, and if we are disaffected by it, it is because we are cold and asleep and dead. And so, Father, we ask you today now by your Holy Spirit to wake us up to give us life, to quicken us, and to give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Father, strengthen us by your word. Uh, give us courage by the things that we read and hear today. Guide our thoughts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, one of the most frustrating things I think I ever heard as a child, it almost it, it even kind of makes me angry to say it even. I almost feel that rush of anger when I say this phrase. And you probably heard it as well. Do as I say, not as I do. Did any of you hear that growing up? Did any of you ever hear anyone say that to you or hear it from someone else? Thank the Lord. My parents never said that. But I was around other adults who said that, uncles and aunts and, and parents of friends, who said, do as I say, not as I do. What makes that so maddening is that you're an adult, you're a grown up, I should be able to follow your example. You should live in such a way that I would want to do what you do. And even as a child, I could, I could pick up on that and, and see that uh, this, is, this is not a consistent way to live and this is not a consistent way to, to speak. And I, I can maybe see on one level, in, in some way, there are things that adults uh, can do. There are privileges and responsibilities that adults have that simply children don't have. So if, if uh, you know, I get into a car and drive, I don't expect my son to follow my, my driving until he's old enough to do it. Uh, there are other, other privileges and other responsibilities that adults have that children don't, but that's not, that's not what they're saying when they say, do as I say, not as I do. It was more like, um, you know, turn off the TV, you're going to rot your brain, you've been watching all afternoon. And the kid would say, well, uh, you watch TV all day. And the parent would say, well, do as I say, not as I do. Something along those lines. And what makes that so frustrating and so maddening is that this is the this is the epitome of hypocrisy. There are different expectations for you than for me. I expect you to live by a different standard than I myself am willing to live by. And kids are great on picking up at hypocrisy. They have very finely tuned hypocrisy meters and they can tell right away when you're not being genuine. Not only uh, do some very bad parents do that and say that uh, to their kids, but, but we also get heavy doses of this from uh, social and cultural elites who say this sort of thing all the time, uh, whether they articulate it 
uh, uh, in so many words, they at least do it through their actions. Do as I say, not as I do. They ridicule us for ruining the planet while they fly across the country back and forth in their private planes. They, they heap guilt on us for our greed and selfishness while they have four houses and a Swiss bank account, right? Do as I say, not as I do. You better obey me and, uh, or, or else I'll heap more guilt on you. Our Father in Heaven never says this, however. He never acts this way. He never expresses this. Our Father in Heaven never says, do as I say, not as I do. But rather, our Father says, do as I say and watch what I do. And see how I demonstrate to you what I've said. I will show you what I expect by my actions. God never commands something that He doesn't demonstrate. Our Father in heaven never expects you to do something that he himself has not done first. God teaches us to live by his actions. And so to be godly is to be like God, to love what he loves, and at the same time to hate what he hates. Not, not, not so that we can be hateful, but so that we can despise those things which kill us and those things that destroy life and those things that distort the image of God in us. Those are the things that we hate. And so becoming godly means aligning our affections with his affections so that, so that our heart matches his heart. We love the things that he loves. We despise the things that, that he hates and he's marked out for judgment. In our study of 1 Samuel so far, we've seen the patience of God. We've seen the tenderness and the meekness and the long suffering of God. God is not prideful. He is not spiteful. He is not mean or vindictive as, as we've seen so far in this study. He is kind and he is merciful and he leads his people lovingly into correction and into their own repentance. The, the way that he walks with his people, the way that he abides with their frailties and their weaknesses, he leads them by the hand into a place of peace. He leads them by the hand into a state of repentance. He deals with their sinful, foolish, rebellious pride, not by being proud and haughty himself, but he humbles himself, God humbles himself to shepherd and father his people. And as he does this, this is an invitation for us to be like him, for us to say, oh yeah, that's, that's how our father in heaven acts. So then that's how we respond and that's how we live. Now in this book so far, my quick 30 second uh, weekly recap, uh, the, the people have rejected his kingship Though he has proved himself time and time again to be worthy of their loyalty, he's proven himself to be their warrior king, but they want another king like the nations. So he concedes and gives them Saul. Saul is not a prideful man when we meet him. Saul is the very definition of a humble and meek man. Saul doesn't push himself forward. Saul is not a self-promoter. He doesn't go brag to his family after he is secretly anointed by Samuel. When, when the high priest is narrowing down the candidates, casting lots, tribe by tribe, family by family, house by house, Saul is nowhere around. He knows that he's going to be appointed king, but he's not anywhere around because he doesn't want the attention. That's not what he's after. He's not after the glory or the, or the power or the influence. He's hiding with the baggage. So 
So Saul from top to bottom is the kind of man you want to lead. But when we read Samuel's description of what kind of king Israel is going to get, if Israel insists on having a king like all the nations, we expect the king when he shows up to be this terrible monster. I mean, if you go back to 1 Samuel 8 and you read that again, you think, oh, we're going to get, we're going to get a three-headed ogre here out of a, and this is what God is going to send us. Samuel said that the king will take and take and take and take, that he will set himself up to be a kind of God over the people rather than being a servant to the people. But when we meet Saul, he's nothing like that. He's such a breath of fresh air. He's such a happy, welcome blessing that they don't deserve. Now, so far, we have anointed him secretly. Samuel has met with him and anointed him secretly. He's been chosen publicly by the high priest, and the people have affirmed the choice. They said, long live the king, even though some detracted. They came back around after he defeated Nahash, the Ammonite. Now it has come time to crown him king. So Samuel calls all the people together at Gilgal. They chose him at Mizpah. Remember last week we saw Mizpah is a place pregnant with meaning and relevance in uh, the history of, of God's people. Mizpah was a place where God had delivered them from the Philistines. It reminded them of the time he delivered them from the Ammonites. Mizpah was, was full of, of relevance uh, for, the, for the situation. And so now they gather at another place, Gilgal, as Samuel says, to crown the king, to renew the covenant, and to refresh the kingdom. It's sort of like Samuel's taking us on a, on, a, on a grand tour of all the big spots in Israel where we need to remember who we are and how we got to this place. What is Gilgal? Does anybody remember what happened at Gilgal? Well, it was the very first place that the children of Israel camped under Joshua, after they crossed the Jordan River, they came to Gilgal, and some very significant things happened in Gilgal. First of all, it was just a stone's throw from Jericho. It's from Gilgal that they launched the offensive against Jericho. But when they got to Gilgal, they renewed covenant there, they celebrated the Passover, and they circumcised all of the males. We find out that they haven't been doing this. Throughout the entire wilderness wandering, nobody had kept the covenant, nobody had been circumcised the whole time. And so now there's a, a, a big circumcision of all the males. Um, and when they've done this, the Lord tells Joshua, he says, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Gilgal is kind of a play on words. Gilgal means literally rolling, rolling. That's what the, that's what the Hebrew word means. And so as they kept the Passover there, as they kept the covenant, God rolled away. God rolled away the reproach. He rolled away and rolled back the sins and the and the shame of the rebellion of Israel in the, in the wilderness. It's also at Gilgal that the manna dried up. And what that means is that the miraculous provision that God gave us in the wilderness is gone. We're done with that. Now we're into a more normal kind of existence. We're going to have to plant fields, and we're going to have to raise livestock. If we're going to eat, this is what we're going to have to do. So we're going to have to eat the produce of the land and, and, then, and then establish culture. We're going to have to establish a society. Gilgal was the threshold from the wilderness to the land and the possession of the land. It was through Gilgal that they passed to go from the old world of the wilderness to the new world of possessing the land. So Gilgal is a place rich with meaning. 
And it's an appropriate place for, for another age to end and another new age to begin. Um, this is now at Gilgal in this era with Samuel. This is now where the old tribal arrangement and the age of the tabernacle and the age of the judges is going to end. And now we're moving on to a new phase of history with Saul and the kingdom. So just like it happened with the, with the generation of Joshua, they're being made into a new people. They are being transformed. They're refreshing the covenant. They're renewing the covenant. And they are standing washed before God. And the reproach is rolled away. The reproach of falsely and foolishly and impatiently asking for a king. This, this is all being rolled away. And that's what we're watching here. So, so Samuel is so brilliant. I don't know if the Lord told him, go to Mizpah, go to Gilgal, but he does. He goes there and these places are so rich with significance when he, uh, when he calls the people to these assemblies. Well, we read there uh, and, and we read just a few minutes ago that they at Gilgal offered peace offerings before Yahweh. You remember what the peace offering is, right? The peace offering is not where the animal is burned up completely on the altar. A part of it is burned up and the smoke is consumed by Yahweh. Then the priest takes his portion and he eats there before the Lord. And then the worshiper and his family takes his portion and they eat there before the Lord. It is a, it is a communion offering. It is a fellowship offering. They are offering and eating together with the priest and with Yahweh, and they're restored to peace with God. It signifies that, that everything's okay. We're, we're on speaking terms with the Lord now. We are, we're okay. We're together. We can eat together before the Lord. We typically don't eat together with people that we hate. We don't eat together with people with whom there's weirdness and tension and difficulty. Or at least if we're trying to solve the tension and the difficulty, we eat together to resolve it. Of eating together has this wonderful, miraculous property of bringing us together around uh, shared food. And that, that's what they're doing here. They're making peace offerings before Yahweh to draw them back into relationship together with him and with Samuel, whom they've offended, and with Samuel, whom they've hurt deeply by asking for a king, and, and making the excuse, you're too old. Uh, Moses was old when he led the people of God. Uh, Abraham was old. This, this is not a reason, this is not something that disqualifies you. In fact, it qualifies you even more, but they, they are, are um, ignorant of all that. And now, now here at Gilgal, they make these peace offerings, and it means that the relationship is at rest. They were formerly at war, but now they're at rest. And this is what God desires. When we sin, he doesn't just write us off and say, well, nice knowing you. Boy, you know, wish that would have went better. E even Samuel at many points, he could have just washed his hands. There's so many, so many points in the story so far where Samuel could have said, you know what, I am, I am so sick of dealing with these people. I'm so tired of their foolishness. Every day it's something new and it's something different. I'm done. But Samuel doesn't wash his hands and walk away. Instead, Samuel says, come, let us renew the kingdom. Let us refresh the kingdom. Let's get a new start. Offer peace offerings and commune together before the altar and the presence of God. What follows then in chapter 12 is a farewell speech of sorts for Samuel. Now, Samuel's going to continue on as a counselor to Saul, 
you know, if you've read ahead, you know, even beyond the grave, he, he's called back. Saul doesn't even let him rest after he dies. But Samuel's going to continue on as an advisor. But Samuel is no longer Israel's leader from this point forward. Uh, Saul, once he's crowned king, Saul is going to be the leader. And so this is Samuel's farewell speech. And as, uh, and as he does this, well, well, you'll see as we read it. I, I want to read the whole exchange at once so that you feel the full rhetorical weight of, of Samuel's charges to Israel. And, and then I'll make a few observations and applications from there. Let's, uh, let's listen to or follow along with 1 Samuel 12. Uh, it's just about 25 verses. I'll read, I'll read it all. Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now here's the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am. Witness against me before Yahweh and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. And then he said to them, Yahweh is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. Then Samuel said to the people, it is Yahweh who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before Yahweh concerning all the righteous acts of Yahweh, which we did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to Yahweh, then Yahweh sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot Yahweh, their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And then they cried out to Yahweh and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken Yahweh and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. Yahweh sent Jeroboam. That, that was Caleb's other, uh, I'm sorry, Gideon's nickname, uh, Baal destroyer, Baal wrestler. Uh, the Lord sent Jeroboam, uh, Bedan, or, or Samson, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when Yahweh your God was your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you've chosen, whom you've desired. And take note, Yahweh has, not, Yahweh has set a king over you. If you fear Yahweh and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of Yahweh, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following Yahweh your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of Yahweh but rebel against the commandment of Yahweh, then the hand of Yahweh will be against you as it was against your father's. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing Yahweh will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to Yahweh, and he will send thunder and rain, that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of Yahweh, in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to Yahweh, and Yahweh sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared Yahweh and Samuel. 
And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to Yahweh your God that we may not die for we've added to all our sins the evil for asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh but serve Yahweh with all your heart. And do not turn aside for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver for they are nothing. For Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased Yahweh to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against Yahweh in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear Yahweh and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Well, one way to see what Samuel's doing here, and one way to interpret this and kind of uh, see uh, the structure of his speech is to see Samuel's putting on a miniature trial. He puts himself on trial, he puts Yahweh on trial, and then he puts Israel on trial, like calling him to the witness stand. He calls himself to the witness stand, and he asks everybody, do you have a complaint against me? Is there anything that I've done to harm you? Have I taken anything from you? Have I taken any bribes? Have I perverted justice in any way? Have I defrauded you? Have I sinned against you? Do, do I owe anybody anything? Remember how he said that the king would take and take and take and take. And he repeats the same word here. Did I take your donkey? Did I take your ox? Did I take your bribe? Have I sinned against you? And the people say before God, they say, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. So Samuel says, just so we're clear, I have not taken advantage of you, correct? Now, I'm sure that Samuel knew the answer to the question because he knows that he hadn't taken anything from anybody. But just to be clear, I want to make sure that if I have defrauded you, you now have the opportunity to call me on it. And you now have the opportunity to correct me and tell me that I have defrauded you, and I will repay you. I will fix it. I will make it right. Samuel asked this sincerely. Incidentally, this is a great question to ask. Fathers, husbands, mothers, um, ask your children, ask your spouse, ask your brothers and sisters, ask your family members, ask, ask brothers and sisters in the church. Have I sinned against you? It, it requires humility to ask this question and you have to be ready for the answer. <laughs> you can't ask this question assuming that you're sinless, that you're spotless, that you're, with, you're without any, any blight. But, but, but ask the question, just so we're clear, have I, have I sinned against you? This is a great question to ask. And be ready for the answer. Because this is, this is the beginning to healing. What's interesting is that sometimes you'll ask this question and uh, the person will say, oh, no, nothing. And they won't mean it. And... And then you kind of wait, well, are they going to ask me? Because I sure would love to, a chance to answer that question, you know, <laughs> uh, because, yeah, in fact, you have sinned against me, but rarely will someone ask you in return. But still, it's, it's a great way to lead. It's a great way to, it's a great way to add, uh, 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 invoke a restitution and a, and a peacemaking, uh, to ask the question, have I, have I ever done you wrong? And, and this is a godly question to ask because even the Lord asks this question. God asks, have I ever done you wrong? What is your complaint against me? In Isaiah 5, he says to his garden, he says to his vineyard, God says, what more could I have done for you that I haven't done? That's what, that's what Yahweh asks of his people. And that's where Samuel turns his attention now. He says, well, look to Yahweh. 
Has he ever done you wrong? Has he ever defrauded you? Samuel goes through all of God's mighty acts, how God has shown himself faithful to his own covenant over and over and over. God has kept his promises all the way back to Exodus. See how God has delivered you. Every time you cry out to him, even when you're in the middle of idolatry and wickedness and perversion, every time you cry out to him, he sends deliverers and he saves you out of the pit. And so Samuel details all the righteous acts of Yahweh and says, he's been a faithful father to you. He has, he has been righteous towards you. And you haven't been righteous with him. He's been a faithful father, but you have not been faithful sons and daughters. And so Samuel says this. He says, I haven't defrauded you, right? Right. I, you haven't defrauded us. Okay, we just want to be clear about that. I haven't sinned against you, right? No, you haven't sinned against us. Has God cheated you? Has, has God done anything against you? No, no, God has not cheated us. So who's left here? Why do we have a mess? Whose fault is this? If it's not my fault, and if it's not Yahweh's fault, who's left? You are. Samuel's faithfulness and Yahweh's faithfulness highlight and underscore the lack of faith in Israel. And he, he reiterates it. He says, you were faithless in asking for a king, yet God is not going to hold that over your head. You're going to actually end up being blessed through the kingdom. In fact, the king and the kingdom here are being brought into the covenant that, that I'm making with my people. Samuel ties the king to the people and the people to the king. And it's interesting how he does this. And he says, the king will never be more righteous than the people. And the people will never be more righteous or faithful than the king. You will always get the king you deserve. And the king will always get the people and the, and the populace that he deserves. The people and the king are tied together. The king will be your representative before God. And he will either lead you into faithfulness or he will lead you into wickedness and idolatry. So, so just as he's doing now, he's, the Lord has given the people a new heart. He's also given the king a new heart. He, he made Samuel, I'm sorry, Saul into a new man. And uh, he's tying them together. He's saying this is a national revival we've got here. Both the king and the people are being renewed and restored and revived and reformed. And now we've got this new setup. And so you're tied together in your obedience and in your faithfulness. We're going to hold on to that because we're going to come back to it right at the end. As a way of confirming all this, Samuel calls upon Yahweh to send thunder and rain. It was a dry time of the year. It was at the wheat harvest, and he calls for thunder and rain. It would be like me calling for a foot of snow today on the 2nd of July. It's unheard of. You wouldn't have thunder and rain in the dry season. And yet here it comes. When Samuel calls for it, the Lord sends it. This is a not-so-subtle reminder about the last time Yahweh sent thunder and he thundered against his enemies. Here, here the Lord does a thing that's characteristic of the way he works. Yahweh speaks, and then he gives us a sign to confirm what he just said. You get a visible witness confirming the word, just like we'll have today. After we hear God's word, we're going to have a visible witness that the covenant between he and us is restored with the bread and the wine. This is a, this is a seal. This is a, a pledge that will show us that Jesus has pledged himself to us. He's not forgotten his covenant with us. And so he confirms the word with the bread and wine, just as he confirmed the word with thunder and rain on this day. 
When they hear the thunder and they see the rain, all the people fear Yahweh and they fear Samuel, it says, and they cry out and they repent of all their sins and they repent of the sinful request for a king. And they ask Samuel to intercede for them so that they won't die before the wrath of God. This is what we've been waiting for. These are the tears that we've looked for and we haven't seen so far outside of Hannah, right? This is, she's the only representative of Israel who's been weeping like this in, in 1 Samuel. But their hearts are softened now. They weep tears of repentance. And Samuel's response to them in their moment of fear and in their moment of repentance is so comforting. And his response to them is so peaceful. Here, he opens up the heart of God for the people. And I'm just going to take a phrase or two at a time. And I want to walk back this very last part that, that he says, beginning about verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not fear. Okay, the Lord has your attention now. You finally see what a great insult this was. How offensive your behavior has been in light of all that God has done for you. In light of all that I have done for you, you see how offensive you've been, right? You see this now. Okay, so don't fear, don't despair, don't, don't lose heart. God isn't done with you yet. Our, our guilt over things can separate us in such a way that we're almost afraid to ask for forgiveness. We're almost afraid to repent. Have you ever owed somebody money and you couldn't pay him back right away? And then it became the sort of week after week the sticking point where then you almost didn't even want to see them. You didn't want to talk to them. You didn't want to look them in the eye. Or there was some wrong that, that just wasn't resolved and you couldn't, you couldn't deal with it. So it separated you. Rather than coming together and talking about it, rather than making it right, it, it separates. And Samuel says, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be at a distance. Don't fear. Don't despair. C come here. Come here. Don't, don't stay away. Don't fear. Come, come here. Let me give you a hug. <laughs> Let me wrap you up in my love. And so Samuel says this. He says, you've done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh. Don't, don't stay over there, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. Do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. It's not like you're going to stop worshiping anything. If, if you're afraid of the presence of Yahweh, it isn't like you're going to have this void in your life that's not going to be, you're going to pursue empty things. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't pursue empty things. We acknowledge that you've done evil. All right, okay. Don't keep doing evil. You've repented. You've offered peace offerings. You see the distance and the difference now between futile things and things of substance. Don't go after the empty things. Those things will never satisfy. You'll never be comforted by them. They'll never save you. Don't be so prideful that you can't admit that your former pursuits were empty and vain. But at the same time, don't become discouraged. Lift up your heads. Sit up. Know that you've been forgiven and that Yahweh's ready to start afresh. This is all about renewal. This is all about revival and starting over, rolling away the reproach. And he continues. He says, for Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Let me start over because I stuttered. For Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased Yahweh to make you his people. He has put his name on you. You are his and he has a stake in your success. 
I have given you my name. You belong to me. You're mine. And so I want you to thrive. I want you to be blessed. I want you to be joyful. I want you to be happy. Child of God, Jesus has also put his name on you at your baptism. He has given you his name. You are Christian. You belong to Jesus. And everything you do and say reflects him. You belong to him. Your story is a projection of his goodness to the world. This is how he's showing his character and his nature through your life, through your story. He's got a stake in you and it has pleased him to do this. It's not like he's begrudgingly like, oh, I guess I'll take those weirdos. If nobody else will have them, you know, yeah, come on, be mine if you want to be mine. But you better act right because the first time you do something awkward, the first time you do something, you know, offhanded. I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to be done with you. No. It says, I'm delighted in you. I, I'm pleased by you. God is not embarrassed of you. He's pleased to put his name on you. So again, Samuel's saying this whole time, don't wallow in your guilt. Don't walk under a black cloud. We're moving forward to glory and blessing. And then he says this, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in, in ceasing to pray for you. They asked him to pray. He says, look, I'm not going to stop praying you don't have to tell me to pray for you. I've been praying for you. I'm going to continue to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear Yahweh and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he's done for you. Here's, here's what we needed to do from the beginning. We needed a change of heart. We needed gratitude. We needed contentment in who God was. It was discontentment in who God was that caused us to walk down this foolish path of asking for a king prematurely because we're not content. And we didn't have a king problem. We had a heart problem. We're really good at misdiagnosing spiritual problems as political problems or procedure problems or or program problems. That, that's what brought Israel to this point. They've got a spiritual problem. Their spiritual problem is unbelief and pride and arrogance, among any, many other things. But they're trying to solve a spiritual problem with a political solution. And it doesn't work. And, and, and we think the same way. We think, well, if something's not working for us, if things are falling apart, full of strife and heartache, it must be a problem with the process. It must be a problem with the program. So this book or this candidate or this strategy or this marketing tactic will solve everything. The thing is, that's not where the problem is. The problem is in here. The problem is with my ingratitude. The problem is with my unbelief, with my pride, with my impenitence, with my lack of contentment. And so the remedy is what Samuel tells people here. He says, you know, remember what God has done for you. Only fear Yahweh and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. The remedy is gratitude and joy and contentment. Then the very last warning. He says, he wraps it up with this. It's the last thing he says. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Now remember, he's already tied the people and the king together in this covenant, in this union, in this bond. And now he's once again saying, you'll be swept away and your king will be swept away. The bad news for them is that their king is a frail, weak human. The bad news is their king is sinful and he's going to fall. The good news for us is that God still has joined his people to a king 
And he has still tied the fate of the king to the people and the fate of the people to a king. The good news is that we have a good king. The good news is that our king is sinless. The good news is our king will never fall. He will never fail. He will never disappoint you. He will never go after idols. He will never go after another people. Because we have the king with a capital K. And he never stumbles. He never disobeys the father. He never leads us into foolishness and wickedness. So, so it's interesting. God has still tied his people to the king. We just have a far better king than they had then. Our identity is wrapped up in our king in such a way that he keeps us holy. And he makes us holy. His obedience before God counts as our obedience before God. In the time of Saul, God was still being gracious to them and giving them Saul. And I'll say it again, because we're going to come to Saul's fall. We need to know Saul was the perfect man for the job. There wasn't a better man in all of Israel. He was the best representative before God, just as Adam was the best man for the job. I think we can, we kind of let our minds wander sometime and think, you know, if I was in the garden, I would have never done that. Right. <laughs> I would have done it like in the first 30 seconds. I don't even know if I'd wait till the cool of the day or the afternoon to do it, right? I wouldn't even need the serpent to, to tempt me. Adam was the best representative of humanity before God. Saul was the best man for the job. God gave them both. And the fact that Adam fell and that Saul is going to fall here is not a defect in God. He set them both up for success. Their respective falls are all the more unbelievable. They're all the more unfathomable because of their position, because of where God put them. They fell so hard and fell so far that it, that it underscores our own frailty and our own great need of a representative who will not fall. We need a representative, a representative before God who will not fail because every time a human gets the job, a man who is not the God-man, every time we have one, he falls. So notice God's faithful, careful, compassionate shepherding of his people throughout all of this. They've exhibited rebellion, disrespect, ignorance, faithlessness, fear, pride, arrogance. And to that, God has not said, you know what? I'm going to treat them the same way they treat me. God has never said that. He says, I'm going to give them the best I have to offer. I'm going to allow them to grow up through this. I'm going to, I'm going to use this to build them up and grow my kingdom and build and bring glory to my name. And what happens? What happens when God doesn't repay them in kind for their uh, disobedience and their rebellion and their disrespect? What happens when God doesn't repay them in kind? They repent with tears. They offer peace offerings. They confess their sins and they're restored. It's a little leadership judo that God is so good at doing. He, he cuts with the grain. He meets them where they are. He starts with their bad request and he turns it into renewal and revival. What does he not do? He doesn't rub their noses in it. He doesn't want them living under a black cloud. He's not holding them at arm's length saying, you know, I told you so. I told you so. He doesn't say, do as I say, not as I do. He says, I want you to be long-suffering. I want you to be kind. So I'm not going to be a grouch. I'm going to be long-suffering and merciful and kind. So if we want to be godly, if we want to be 
like God, what do we learn from this and the things we've been learning so far? What does it mean to be a good father, a good mother, a good husband, a good wife, a good leader, a good teacher, a good member of his body. We, we study this stuff because we need to know what God is like. That's why we go dig it around in the Old Testament and, and read these stories. Every single verse is because we need to know what our God is like so that we can be godly. And so what this shows me is that if there's anything that I want to see in my children, if there's anything that I want to see in my spouse, in my employees, in my students, in my neighbors, if there's anything that I want to see I've got to model it. I've got to demonstrate it. The way that God demonstrates what he wants his people to do. If you aren't seeing it in your children, it might not mean, it might mean that you're not leading in it. So, so if I want to see repentance in my son, if I want to see him able to ask forgiveness and seek forgiveness, I've got to initiate it. I have to take opportunities to seek his forgiveness. I have, to, I have to apologize and repent to him so that he sees this is what a man looks like. This is what it looks like when a man asks for forgiveness. I've got to show him. If I want to see it in him, I've got to start. I've got to initiate it. If I want respect out of my wife or my daughter, I have to respect them. I have to show them what respect looks like. I have to lead in that. If I want submission, I must first submit. I've got to show them what it looks like. It's, it's, it's our job. If, if I want patience, mom and dad, if I, if I want patience from my kids, I've got to show them patience. Why are kids so impatient? Why are they so crazy and bouncing off the walls and asking for things all the time? Well, what do I do when I hit the door? Oh, pick this up, get this up. Why haven't you done this already? Take the garbage out. It's not out. I'm impatient. I'm teaching them how to be impatient. If I want them to show love and gratitude, I've got to show love and gratitude for them. I've, I've got to show them how this is done. If I want, if I want them to, to show respect, I've got, to, I've got to be respectful toward them. See, I'm, I'm saying this because this is how God shepherds us. This is how he treats us. He never asks us to do something as his children that he doesn't first demonstrate. And so when he demonstrates it, he's saying, this is how I want you to act. And if you want to be godly, if you want our hearts to be one, if you want to love the things I love and hate the things I hate, you need to follow my example. So God initiates. He always initiates. He does it first so that we can follow him in his behavior. And don't forget, of course, that he loved us before we loved him. And the only reason we know what love is is because he initiated that as well. So that's, that's what we see here. And let's pray that we can be like him. Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, guide us and shepherd us just as you shepherded your people in Israel, just as you showed them what patience and kindness and gentleness and long suffering looked like. Father, uh, show us and remind us and keep it before our eyes every day so that we would be faithful, so that we would love the things you love and exhibit that same passion and heart for lovely and beautiful and true things as you do. And may we hate the wicked, ugly, despicable things that lead to death and destruction. May we hate them with the same uh, hatred that you have. Treat, teach us, O oh Lord, 
how to have your affections and express them the way you do. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.